Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Happy Sunday. I imagine you are looking forward to a fun and festive couple of days. The 4th of July was always one of my family's favorite holidays growing up. My mom was actually born on the 4th of July, and we always celebrated with a massive party. And uh, we also owned our own fireworks stand, which we would open up every year for the weeks leading up to the holidays. And I spent many a summer day in my teenage years manning that red, white, and blue plywood shack, selling firecrackers of all kinds. And so this is not just a special day for us nationally, but also for me personally. After selling the last of our 4th of July inventory, we would head north to my grandparents' ranch. We would swim in their pool for the afternoon. We would make homemade ice cream in the evening, and then we would settle down to watch our very own private fireworks show. I have a lot of great memories like these from my growing up years, many great memories. I also have a lot of not-so-great memories. On the one hand, my parents were believers who loved the Lord and tried to live out their faith. On the other hand, my parents were, in many ways, they were emotionally and relationally broken. They, they weren't heart-healthy. And our home didn't always uh, reflect on the inside how things may have looked from the outside, My dad was a church elder. He was tasked with helping manage the business of our church while his own business, the one he started and managed, was failing in part due to his poor management. Meanwhile, my mom was the senior adult minister at our church. She was tasked with leading all the events and activities designed to serve our senior citizens, but she was secretly fighting a hidden battle with alcohol addiction. In the first week of this sermon series, I quoted the Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who once wrote, Everyone has three lives a public life, a private life, and a secret life. We had all three in my family growing up. And so, as a child growing up in what was, in many ways, a dysfunctional family, I have lived through some difficult things. And as a man trying to lead my own family well, I've been through some difficult things there as well. As such, I've learned a few things along the way. For one, hard times. Hard times, whether we call them adversity, affliction, trials, or tribulation, hard times happen for everyone. No one has it easy. No one is exempt from adversity. Rich or poor, healthy or sick, young or old, majority and minority populations, black, white, brown, and all the other hues on the human spectrum, no one is exempt from adversity. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Actually, this is exactly what Jesus said. He said, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have 
overcome the world. But we're still in the world. And no one has it easy. No one is exempt from adversity. That's one of the things I know for sure. Here's another thing I know for sure. Adversity, more than anything else, reveals what's underneath the surface. It doesn't just shape who we are, although it certainly does that too. It actually reveals who we are. It, it, it reveals what's in the heart. And so three weeks ago, we opened up this series with 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where God rejected Saul as the current king of Israel, as well as Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, as the next king of Israel because of the condition of their hearts. Instead, God chose the youngest son of Jesse, David, to be the next king, and God's choice was based on the condition of David's heart. It says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, David is described like this. God testified concerning him, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so we've learned in this series how the ancient word for heart, much like we use it today to represent our feelings, in the ancient world it was used to represent not just our feelings, but also our thoughts and our beliefs and our convictions and our motivations and our passions and even our pain. It represents all the beneath the surface stuff in us. Three weeks ago, we shared the image of an iceberg, and we said the heart is like the under-the-surface part of an iceberg. Only a fraction of an iceberg is visible out of the water. The majority of an iceberg is what's under the surface. Now, our, our above-the-surface stuff, is, it's what's on the outside of us. It's what people can see. It's the visible stuff from our appearance to our bodies, to our behaviors, to our actions, to our words. But that's actually just a fraction of who we are. There's another part of us that's more mysterious. It's what's on the inside of us. It's the under-the-surface stuff. It's the invisible stuff, our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our convictions, our motivations, our passions, and our pain. That's what the heart is in the Bible. And we can live our lives focused on the outward things, the visible things, the above-the-surface things, and we can even do some very good things, but God is more concerned about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. And I think the reason for that is is because what's on the outside can be faked. We can fool others. We can even fool ourselves. In fact, we probably fool ourselves the most. But we can't fool God. And we can't fake it forever. Eventually what's on the inside will find its way to the outside. Whenever I have ignored the health of my heart, the beneath the surface stuff, eventually it has always come out and caused damage. And what happens in times of adversity is the cracks in our character become canyons. The dents become disasters. 
And if we are unwilling to look beneath the surface to get serious about healing our heart issues, then our growth will be limited, our flourishing inhibited, but most importantly, it will keep us from aligning our hearts with God's heart. And so I've experienced adversity, and you have experienced adversity, and David experienced adversity. And adversity, more than anything else, reveals the condition of our hearts. So let's discover this morning some of the adversity David experienced, and let's break it down into four parts like this. And if you're taking notes, I I tried to write these four points to make them as memorable as possible. They go like this. Saul tries to kill David, episode one. Saul tries to kill David, episode two. Saul tries to kill David, episode three. And... Yes, Saul tries to kill David, episode four. And the truth is, the the chapters we're gonna look at today uh, read a little bit like pulp fiction. Oh, not the movie, the literary genre. Pulp fiction are those cheap novels written by the same authors that essentially tell the same stories over and over and over. Again, same characters, same plot, same tension. Essentially, the same story with some of the location and the details differing, but basically the same thing over and over again. That's pulp fiction. And that's what this section of scripture reminds me of. But this isn't fiction. This actually happened. The same characters, David and Saul, with a little Jonathan sprinkled in. Same tension, aging has been, trying to hold off the up and coming hero. Same plot, King Saul trying to kill David to keep the throne. Same outcome, David escapes all of Saul's assassination attempts. But I think the primary message the author is trying to get through the, to the reader is this message, that David had to live through it in order to get to it. Even though David was chosen to be the next king from an early age, he still had to pay the price to get to the throne. The pain preceded the palace. The discomfort preceded the crown. And as we share an overview of each of these four stories, we're gonna see how the ensuing 15 years of David waiting to take the throne, especially those last 10 years, were exceedingly hard years filled with adversity and affliction and trials and tribulations. And those 15 years did two things for David. Number one, it revealed what was in his heart. And number two, it built him and his heart and his character to prepare him for the throne. Now, the first time Saul tried to kill David was in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, in 1 Samuel 17, remember the story, David killed Goliath, ensuring a military victory for Israel. In 1 Samuel 18, David is celebrated by the masses in Israel, including Saul's own family. David marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and he becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and and Saul begins to get jealous. In fact, a victory parade came out to Saul and David in the forces of Israel one day when they were returning from a victorious battle against the Philistines. And the victory parade was chanting as they entered the city, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. 
1 Samuel 18, 8 and 9 says, Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Well, he doesn't just keep a close eye on David. He, he tried to keep a spear on David. The very next day, David was playing music to soothe Saul's anxiety. And that's when verses 10 and 11 say, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, at this point, obviously, David knows his life is in danger. And at this point, Saul also realizes that he himself is in a very bad place. Saul is so overwhelmed with anxiety and paranoia that he hurled his spear at David. And I don't think Saul has yet reached the point of being diabolically evil, and maybe he never did, but I do think that that he reached the point of neuroticism, uh, even narcissism. In this story, we see he's beginning to to crack, and and he's giving into his emotional turmoil by acting out in rage. And so David realizes he's in danger, and Saul realizes he's dangerous for David. Saul, it seems, doesn't like who he becomes when David is around, and so he says, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just send David away, and he gives David command of a 1,000 troops, and he sends them off to battle, and it sounds like a win-win for everybody, and at first it seems to be, but it's not because David, with his troops, is victorious in a number of new battles for Israel, becoming even more popular Verse 15 says, when Saul saw David's success, he was afraid of him. So now Saul is not only jealous of David and anxious, he's now afraid. And that brings us to Saul tries to kill David, episode two. 1 Samuel 19, same thing happens again. It's a complete retread of the same story. Now, we mentioned this part of David's story last week. We talked about David and Jonathan. This is the time that Jonathan went out to Saul and he talked him out of killing David. Jonathan reminded of his father of all the great things that David had done for him and for Israel. And Jonathan reminded him that David had never done anything to dishonor, disobey, disrespect, or subvert the king. And in in response to Jonathan, Saul made an oath. He swore, he promised that he would leave David alone, that he would never again try to kill him. But David went out with his men again and won yet another battle against the Philistines and he became even more popular and Saul emotionally, relationally, mentally, spiritually just began to crack even further. Saul is just overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and verse nine actually describes his mental state as being afflicted by an evil spirit. And once again, David is playing music for Saul to to soothe his anxiety when 1 Samuel 19.10 says, Saul tried again to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him again as Saul drove his spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. This escape from Saul in chapter 19 begins what becomes 10 years of suffering for David. 10 years of suffering of living on the run. 10 years of feeling stuck with the same thing over and over again. 10 years of whenever he laid his head down to rest, he wondered if he would wake up to an attack 
from Saul. 10 years of waiting on his destiny. The prophet Samuel told David when he was 15 years old that he'd be the next king of Israel. And from 15 years old to 20 years old, David has mostly upwardly mobile experiences, all these victories, all these successes. In that span of five years, he goes from being a lowly shepherd in the fields of Bethlehem to a, a war hero married to the king's daughter. He's moving up in this world. But when Saul begins to crack up mentally and emotionally, everything falls apart for David. David flees from Saul. And then vindictive as he was, Saul gives his daughter, David's wife, to another man in marriage. And David is left with nothing. He's living on the run. David, however, always the leader, quietly attracts a new following. 1 Samuel 22, 2 says, all those who are in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. And about 400 men were with him. Now that's the beginning of the 10 years of adversity. And I wanna, I wanna fast forward toward the end of David's 10 years of adversity, toward the end of he and Saul's conflict. And 1 Samuel 24 David and his men, they're hiding out in the desert of En Gedi. And if you ever go to Israel with us someday, we'll spend a day in the desert of En Gedi. It's, it's on the western slopes of the Dead Sea. In these steep slopes, they're dotted with thousands of, of rather large caves, and they're perfect places to hide. And at the bottom of several of these slopes, fresh water collects, growing a lush oasis of trees and plants and fruits. Again, perfect place to hide. There are caves to live in with unlikely food and water sources, surrounded by an otherwise dead sea, an uninhabitable desert. And this is where David and his 400 men were hiding out. Until Saul found out. 1 Samuel 24, 1 and 2 says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David has been seen in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, and he went out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Well, to make a long story short, David and some of his fighting men were hiding in a cave that Saul entered to relieve himself. And David's men said to David, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hands. Let's, let's kill him. But David would not attack Saul. Something we see all throughout David's story, David would serve Saul, David would fight for Saul, David would even flee from Saul to save his own life, but David would not fight against Saul. David had such a respect for the office of the king, he would not attack him, even to save himself. David believed it would dishonor God to attack the king, even when the king was attacking David. And David was not going to dishonor God. Instead, what David did is he snuck up to Saul in the darkness of the cave. He cut a corner, a piece of the robe that Saul had laid aside to relieve himself. Cut it off. 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 through 7 says, Afterward, David was conscious stricken even about this, for having a cut a corner off of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Well, then when Saul was on his way out of the cave, David, at a distance, followed him out. And then, then he held up the cut-off piece of robe and he called out, King Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why do you keep pursuing me like I'm a threat? And realizing David could have killed him, but didn't, Saul recognized the error of his ways. He humbled himself 
He apologized to David. Verses 20 and 21, Saul says, I know that you will surely be king. The kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Just swear to me by the Lord that you'll not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Verse 22 says, so David gave Saul his oath. Then Saul returned home and David went with his men up to the stronghold. End of story. Everybody lived happily ever after, right? Nope, <laughs> not even close. First Samuel 26, you have almost the exact same story repeated again. Remember, it's like the, the literary genre, Pulp Fiction. Same characters, same plot, same heroes, same villains, same outcome. The only details that are different in chapter 26 is it's not a cave where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, it's a camp. Here's how it happened. Saul again wants to kill David. David's hiding out again, this time in a different set of hills. Saul gets intel regarding David's whereabouts, again takes 3,000 troops out to find David. They set up a military camp in the vicinity, a military camp that David sees. And so from there, under the cover of darkness, David takes one of his best soldiers, Abishai. They sneak into Saul's camp at night where they find him sleeping as well as one of his best soldiers, Abner, and his guards. They're all sleeping. No one is guarding Saul. Abishai tries to convince David to let him kill Saul. David, we, we, can, we can end this now. All our hiding can end now. All our running can end right now. The reign of Saul can end tonight. I can kill him right here in his sleep if you'll let me. And then you'll be the next king. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses nine through 11, David responds to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get, get his spear and his water jug that are near his head and let's go. David and Abishai then creep out of the camp with Saul's spear and Saul's water jug and they climb up a ledge and they start yelling for Saul and Abner to wake up and then, then David is kind of funny, he mocks Abner for sleeping on the job and, and uh, he holds up Saul's spear and Saul's jug and then he says the same thing he said in Gedi. Look Saul, I could have killed you. I was right there with you in the dark, close enough to take your spear and your water jug, here they are. I don't want to kill you. Why do you keep trying to kill me? And once again, Saul was overcome with regret and he apologized to David for trying to kill him. And, and this time, Saul actually finally left David alone for good. Now, that didn't mean David would go home. Um, he didn't trust Saul enough to go home. He and his men waited in the wilderness for several more years until Saul died. And it didn't get easier much even then. And so we have this 10-year-long season of adversity between David's early years where he was extremely successful and upwardly mobile than his later years when he became king. But there was 10 years of misery in the middle. And the only thing that we have really discussed this morning in this 10-year season is David's conflict with Saul, but I hope you'll read the whole story. He had conflicts with the Philistines. He had conflicts with a man named Nabal, uh, whom David nearly murdered out of sheer anger. 
And if you uh, go and read the story of Nabal, it's almost like David allowed all of his rage from his entire season of adversity to be focused against Nabal instead of Saul. And if there's any point that we're reading the story of David's early years, we, we think, okay, David has had his limit. Like he is about to crack. It's with Nabal. And you can read that story. But, but I wanna circle back to where we, where we started as we conclude our message for today. And I wanna circle back to how adversity affects our hearts. Because adversity affects our hearts in significant ways and because we're all going to face adversity. For some of you, adversity is something you'll experience consistently throughout your life. For others, you'll experience a season of success, perhaps for many years, but then you'll, you'll go through some hard things before emerging on the other side. Others of you might not face much adversity until your latter years, but, but every person eventually will face a season or many seasons of adversity, and we want to be prepared for them. We want even to see value in them. And so there are two ways that I wanna mention this morning where adversity is actually valuable to us, and sometimes it's even a gift to us. And here's the first way. Adversity is valuable to us. Adversity reveals to us what's actually in our hearts. Adversity pulls back the curtain on what's beneath the surface of our lives. It shows us vividly where our strengths and our weaknesses lie. Until adversity hits, we don't really know what we're made of. One of the things that I notice about David in, in this season, in the deepest, darkest part of his 10 years of his fleeing and his suffering, and we didn't read about this part, but it's in 1 Samuel 23. There are three different occasions, and it's the only place in this 10-year span where it says this, but in 1 Samuel 23, on three different occasions, it says that David inquired of the Lord. In David's deepest, darkest valley, he didn't turn to any of the world's unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with adversity. He turned to God. He sought the Lord. And this very much shows the depth of his faith. Something else that shows both the depth of his faith and the strength of his character is this. Every opportunity David had to take his own destiny into his own hands, he didn't. Twice David could have easily killed Saul, but he didn't. David never attacked Saul he simply trusted God. Like we sang about in the song a few moments ago, he trusted God to fight his battles for him. He simply let God deal with Saul. And we're gonna learn more about that next week when Pastor Sean shares the story of how David finally became king. But for today, we see that adversity reveals what's in our hearts. It reveals what's under the surface of our lives. It shows us where we are weak and where we are strong so that we can know something about our own heart health and address it. The second thing that adversity does is this. Adversity points us to God. Perhaps more than anything else, it's in our times of adversity where we see God work the most. And I would love to unpack point number two for you, but we're gonna stop there because that's where we're gonna pick up next week.
The challenge for today is to embrace our seasons of adversity as opportunities to work on the under the surface stuff in our hearts. Don't just work on what's on the outside. Work on what's on the inside. Your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your motivations, your passion, and your pain. Do the heart work now so that you'll be prepared when the adversity comes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life and the example of David that in seasons of adversity, at least in these early years of his life, when he faced adversity, he aligned his heart with yours. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name. pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.